Welcome back to the Inking Out Loud podcast, ladies and gentlemen, and fairies, and elves, and ogres, and ogrillos, and Akiri. Uh, on this 14th episode, we're going to dive straight into The Blade of Taishal, which is the second volume uh, in Matthew Woodring Stover's sci-fi fantasy blend, The Acts of Cain. Uh, more accurately, we're going to be discussing the first half of the novel, which includes everything up through chapter 11. Um, the end of chapter 11. So, as always, I'm your host, Rob Santos. I'm joined today, by, again, by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And back with us again today is Mr. Patrick McCaffrey, our sound engineer. The, or otherwise known as the Actiri. <laughs> the Actiri, exactly. Uh, before we begin, there are a couple things, of course, that I need to mention. Uh, keeping in theme with our last two podcasts, and due to the extreme graphic content of the subject material today, we've decided that there really isn't much point in censoring this episode. Uh, this, this series is notorious for its grim, its dark, its outright horrifying content at times. And the bar, of course, naturally, has only been raised for this volume. So if you're continuing forward, you understand that we will be discussing a whole lot of things in this episode that are difficult to hear. Uh, this includes torture rape you know even naughty words then again we're also <laughs> going to be spoiling the shit out of the first half of the novel so we presume that if you've made it this far uh, nothing that you hear today on this episode is going to be any worse thank so, you for allowing yeah. me my full range of fucking expression <laughs> yes i know it's like the, the gloves are off we can we can be totally natural today so oh, uh, yeah we're going to kick it off to drew here uh he's going to give us a primer a recap of what we read yeah so uh this book picks up Several years after the conclusion of Heroes Die, uh, and where Heroes Die ended on on sort of a a high note, where it seemed like Kane was going to, you know, come out on top. He's going to get the girl back, and and he's he's got a good life going forward despite being paralyzed. We find out very quickly in this one that uh, while he did get all of those things, he's been upcasted to administrator uh, Kohlberg. His Old Nemesis has been downcasted to a laborer and is working in the slums. And Hari is back together with his wife, Shauna, and they have a daughter, Faith. Mm. And, uh, and and Hari is now the administrator of the San Francisco studio and all this stuff. He is miserable. Uh, he's still paralyzed from the waist down. And even with the best technology on Earth, it's only kind of partially effective. And... He he feels like nobody really understands him. You know, he's he's trying to figure out how his life is going to work without Kane anymore. And meanwhile, Milekoff, who was brought back to Earth, is still on Earth and has renamed himself Tanelkoff, which is, uh, if you remember in the first book, Milekoff means I am limitless, and Tanelkoff now means I was limitless. So he's he's kind of recognizing the transient nature of his godhood but he he and Kane remain sort of antagonists but they have this sort of antagonistic friendship at the same time because they're the only two people who understand each other yeah where, where i mean they're open about how much they dislike each other but they're inextricably drawn together and so it, the book starts off with this kind of dreary setting where Kane is not happy it seems like nobody's really happy and then on overworld one poor decision after another leads to an outbreak of what is essentially super rabies. And, and this is a disease called HRVP that has been eradicated on Earth, and or contained at least. Everybody's vaccinated. It's mandatory. And, and in fact, the original outbreak of HRVP is was the impetus behind the current caste system on Earth. 
And so this this horrible, horrible virus is now running rampant on Overworld, and uh, and Kane immediately takes action to send Shauna, Palace Rill, who is now uh, the River God Chambaraya, back to Overworld to create a counter virus and, and help stop everything. And uh, Tanakoth sees an opportunity here to get himself back to Overworld. So he approaches the Board of Governors of the studio directly and tells them he can solve their cane problem. And he sets off a whole chain reaction wherein uh, essentially Cain uh, is uh, imprisoned by the, the social police. Uh, the lifeless corpse of Bairn, back from Heroes Die, one of the main villains, uh, is inhabited by a demon and kills Palace Rill. And Kohlberg, the old studio administrator in San Francisco, is selected by the Board of Governors to uh, kind of be the, the hand of them in executing all of their desires and and this mystical uh implication comes through here where, where it seems like Kohlberg is sort of becoming the manifestation of something that Hari's father Duncan calls the blind god or the god of dust and ashes and and this is this mindless sort of impersonal <laughs> god of humanity that is all about the consumption of things it is all about, you know, it, it has it has a good side and a bad side, and they talk about this a little bit, but when given excess, it is a very <laughs> concretely bad thing, and, and it is, at this point, awoken and is now a very bad thing. And, uh, and so that was about where we left off, uh, where Palace Real is dead, Kane has been captured by uh, an old monastic ambassador named Wraith, whose uh, parents died because of Kane's actions back in Heroes Die. Uh, and everything looks really, really bad right now. <laughs> yeah, that's an understatement, isn't it? Oh, boy, this was, a, this was, this was brutal. <laughs> like, I, I mean, we need... I, I might have even said this before, but we need new words. <laughs> because brutal still doesn't quite do this, this book justice. Yeah, brutal uh, doesn't cut it. Yeah, it definitely doesn't. Um, but then again, if you you mean if you've read the first half of this book, you already we, you don't need us to tell you exactly how hard it was. Uh, I, I do want to say that like with with I have noticed uh, I don't know an improvement perhaps if you want to call it that in Stover's style. Um, I I really I have notes and notes for days here talking about his cadence, his timing, the way he describes things. I mean, right from the get-go, right on page one, for example, let's start off here. Uh, we get this vividly painted scene um, with this really, really visceral description, which, by the way, I realize, I'm starting to realize, it's a word that we use a lot on this podcast, visceral. I may have even said this before, <laughs> but it's it, we get a classic example of it right here. We have Administrator Chandra, Chandra, however mm -hmm. you want to pronounce that, he wipes sweat from his palms. He's He blinks through a stinging cloud of cigar smoke. He licks his lips, which are described as thick and always dry. I mean, Stover, he nails these sensations in rapid succession. As a reader, you know, when you're getting ready to dive into a new book, there's always this kind of brief period of settling with the new setting, the new characters. And I think this is why uh, Stover, he makes sure to include these, these basic senses. It's kind of like a method, I think, of breaking through that wall immediately and just bringing you into the narrative uh, with feet running, yeah. so to speak, right? 
Yeah. And and I actually want to kind of talk about this yeah, yeah. in a larger sense. And it's a, specifically, this is chapter zero uh, that Rob is talking about. It's how the yeah. book starts. And I didn't mention this part in my recap because it's it's kind of an ancillary text almost. Chapter zero isn't a traditional prologue. It's, it's a full, long segment. And when yeah. you look at the actual narrative structure of it, it follows a different character. It follows a... Uh, an aspiring actor named Chris Hansen and tells a story of his time in the studio academy called the conservatory and how he meets Harry Michelson, how he meets Kane and how their lives become intertwined mm. and eventually ends with how Chris manages to graduate. And if you look at just chapter zero as a discrete text, this is, this is a short story. It's a complete, fully formed short story. It's, yeah, it follows yeah. Chris Hansen, has a, a beginning, middle, and end, an end. You know, it, it has a, a completed character arc. And because it's a short story, uh, if anybody you know listening is a writer or has taken writing classes, things like that, one of the things you learn when you're writing short stories is how important space is and how important it is to mm. draw the reader in right away. And yes, this is important in, in novels, but even more so, even more magnified in short stories because it's, you know, you, you have limited space. And so Stover's decision to start off this novel with what is essentially a short story drives home that impact. And, and, and that very first scene with Administrator Chandra and, and his decision about how he's going to solve his problem with Chris. Yeah. I mean, it draws you in so fast. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're, you you make a great point. I hadn't really considered just how much Chapter Zero does kind of stand on its own, mm -hmm. um, like separate, like distinct from the rest of the novel. I mean, we have like other, uh, we do have other chapters that are. I'm not sure if they are quite as long, uh, but they they come close. Um, but what sets Chapter Zero apart is, I think, the amount of different notes that it hits. Uh, for example, like we have these long, drawn out, beautifully written scenes, these touching moments, and then. For example, I have this uh, written down, chapter zero, part 19. It's a single <laughs> sentence. It's And I think it's a really interesting stylistic choice, because I'm not sure if I've personally ever read a chapter quite that brief. Uh, I know I've read some Sanderson chapters that are, like, less than a page. Uh, Elantris, mm -hmm. I think, comes to mind. Fionn's final scene might have been the one I'm thinking of. But, like, this one specifically, with one single sentence, it really kind of hits home. Um, it's just you have, uh, speaking aesthetically, you just have the part number, and then the single sentence, which, when you pair them together, kind of makes me think of, like, a hammer and a nail, right? Mm -hmm. like, like, they kind of work best if you just give a slight tap to set that groove, and then a, sh a sharp snap of the wrist, drive it through with a single blow. Um, it was really efficient, Chapter Zero. Like, I really appreciated it, for sure. Yeah, and, and staying with Chapter Zero, I think it's a great uh, contrast to the points of view we get in Heroes Die, where we get to know mm. Kane specifically very, very well. And you have, you have a sort of normalized sense for violence because Kane is such an inherently violent person yeah. and he has such a blasé attitude toward violence that when you get into Chris Hansen's head, you get somebody who is very disconnected, grew up very sheltered, has no idea. And, and that provides a disconnect between Chris and, and Hari when they're sort of becoming friends 
and and it's only when Chris shows his his real bravery that he earns Kane's respect, Hari's respect. Mm. Uh, but there there are a few sentences that I highlighted in chapter zero that provide such a great contrast to Kane's perspective and Kane's attitude, and and one of them I have here is someday you say the wrong thing to some random Hari Michelson. And an instant later, you're on the floor, choking out the last of your breath. Yeah. And it wasn't Hari that frightened me, even now. It was the world he lived in. The way I'd begun to see my life through his eyes. It was his intimate understanding of the fragility of my life, of his life, of anyone's. And that he just didn't care. Hmm. And you, you yeah. have these, these wildly differing worldviews from Chris's perspective, you know, that we just don't get from Kane. He's, he's so immersed in the life of violence that it's easy to get desensitized as a reader. And yeah. <laughs> having Chris start off this book as our point of view character, Stover brings us back and gives us sort of that narrative fresh air hmm. that, you know, it's, it's, it's refreshing as a reader, but at the same time, it's almost prepping us to be blindsided by just how grim this book is going to get. Oh yeah. It gets tough. It gets I, tough. It's, it's refreshing um, in one sense, but uh, in the other sense, we're just taking a, a look at the same old thing from a, from a different point of view. Mm -hmm. We're looking at Kane's world yeah. as, as yes. has been said. So it's not really thematically a breath of fresh air. It's, a breath of fresh air just from, from a perspective. Yes, um, exactly. I, also, you, I don't know if yeah. you guys got this impression too, but on my first read, me. Um, it felt like we weren't being introduced to Chris so much as we were being reintroduced to Kane at a at a earlier point at a um, yeah to give us That's some fair. insight into Kane in the now. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so my first I read did, through. For sure. Yeah, my first three through, read through, I definitely agreed with that perspective, Pat. I think uh, it it felt like further background, further character mm. formation for Hari. <clears throat> but now that I've read this book twice, and and this is my third read through, uh, I do have a different perspective on Chapter Zero and getting in Chris's head, and I I picked up on more things from Chris's point of view, and I've been able to take them into context of the greater series and, and especially in this book as a whole, because I've read it before and they're interesting things. And, and again, I have a couple of things highlighted uh, that I never picked up the first time, obviously, but now that I I've read the book and, you know, even through chapter 11, we know about the blind God. We know about the God of dust and ashes. And there are things from the get go where, uh, where Chris, you know, he's talking about, um, uh, um, Administrator Chandra and he talks about how there's an eerie impersonal hunger behind his eyes <laughs> and uh, and then oh my god and then when he uh, uh, when, when he's in the bathroom and Bollinger is attacking him he looks into Bollinger's eyes and he says I was wrong about his eyes they weren't hungry like a bear's what I can see from Point Blank was an impersonal hunger, an abstract and dispassionate lust. 
Oh my god! See, this and, again. I don't know if I mentioned this yet before in the in the previous couple of podcasts. This is my first time reading through these things. So I mean, I, I can see how you'd pick it up after two, after three reads. But that you are blowing my mind right now. I didn't. Obviously, I didn't pick up on it back then. But now that you're saying that, I do remember these these very very specific uh, words that Stover used there. Impersonal hunger. I'm I'm starting to see that in a whole other light now. So damn. Good, damn, good point there. Yeah, and, and there's even more of it when the social police come and visit Chris when he's recovering and mm-hmm. they're asking him questions about Bollinger. And, and there's, uh, he, he talks about um, how he gets the impression that the social police want Bollinger dead, but that it's something more than that. And he says, they wanted him dead, sure, but more than that, they wanted me to be their accomplice. This didn't come to me in a flash. And, and flash is an important term here because Chris has this sort of supernatural ability to what he calls flash on other people and get in their heads yes. and understand their, their thought process. So he that says, once or so twice, much. I kind of had that half-dizzy feeling a flash gives me, but I never got anything from them. And maybe that was it. Maybe that was it exactly. Maybe I did flash on them, and there was nothing there. <laughs> oh, that's just downright spooky. Yeah, and and there Damn. are these little things that, as you're reading through chapter zero the first time, they're just they're just kind of flavor details. But looking uh. back on it with the context of <laughs> reading half of this book and knowing Give now me the heebie-jeebies, what the blind god is, and seeing that the blind god has been asleep but has been there the whole time. Damn, chapter Damn. zero is a is a masterpiece. I mean, there's so oh, much groundwork laid in it. I want to go back and read it right now before I even finish the <laughs> book. Damn. Uh, so the, the majority of the points, the, the talking points that I have here to discuss, um, before we get to the characters, are just stylistic things, um, aesthetic <laughs> things that I've noticed about the text. Um, I'll get a couple of these out of the way. Uh, first off, I, I was listening to the audiobook for the first novel. So for this novel, I've been reading it uh, on page. And it, it was really interesting to me this time to see how Actiri is really sp- is actually spelled. Yeah. Um, I, I, having listened to the audiobook, I, you know, I, if I'm being honest, I found the word Actiri a little on the boring side since I was kind of just imagining it as like a normal font, like A-C-T-E-R-I-E, which would obviously be really close to the word actor. But st- yeah. there's something about seeing it on the page now, italicized and spelled the way it is, A-K-T-I-R-I, it kind of gives it a bit more of an intimidating air. Uh, I think it kind of lends the overworld legends of Earth a measure of the unfamiliar, this kind of alien fear. Um, so mm-hmm. I just wanted to say that that's this is one thing that I've picked up on now, actually physically reading the book. Um, and I do also kind of like the occasional bit of overworld translation of basic English words that they yes. really don't have at their disposal. In chapter two, we get Wraith, uh, who refers to what I assume are assault rifles as springless repeating pellet bows. Yeah. Which gave me a nice little <laughs> chuckle. Um, and also, throughout the, throughout the book while, while we're here, uh, just you know, nitpicking little tiny little things that made me giggle. Um, it's it's kind of funny to find a few, if you've noticed, I'm sure you guys have noticed it, modern day brand names sprinkled throughout oh, yeah. our points of view, uh, you know, on future Earth. I, I had a, a note here to myself. I said, note to self, invest in Sony. Apparently, they're going to be around <laughs> long enough to have a Sony repeater in Kohlberg's former office. Yeah. Uh, and then again, this, of course, <laughs> from here, it made me stop and look up, you know, roughly when in the timeline this is set in future Earth. 
by the way. Like, I really couldn't find anything conclusive, not while mess, you know, I didn't want to mess with spoilers, so I was being very careful during my Google searches. So I, I shot Drew a message. Uh, I'm sure you remember that, Drew. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, do you know roughly when this take pla- This takes place in the future? And then I just kept, read, uh, kept reading, waiting for Drew to get back to me. And then I found the answer literally on the next page. <laughs> Hari, he lets us place it in our own heads because he casually thinks about this technology that's capable of monitoring for sensitive words and communications uh, as dating back like almost 200 years, mm-hmm. uh, as he says. So I assume this is the kind of technology that we've had since somewhere around the 60s, maybe up to the 80s. I don't know roughly when that, that uh, emerged in our society, but I think that would place this narrative, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, around a fictitious Earth the year 2170 give or take uh, uh, a decade or two it's it's around 2200 yeah um okay. I, I, okay there's one point where he specifically talks about how there are things developed in the early 20th 21st century and that's 200 years ago okay okay and i would also want to say i do appreciate the fact that stover did not give us an exact year mm-hmm. somehow because yeah even though the opportunity was ripe i th- i think it would have just been too much in a yeah. way it, it would have felt like maybe manufactured or, or synthetic mm-hmm. too neat and precise i kind of yeah. like having that flexibility of placing the narrative just approximately yeah you know? also by the way apparently microsoft sells gps tracking anklets uh sort of like oh. the ones we have today oh, yeah. i Correct. guess it didn't sound very different um, yeah i mean you you yeah. just if you pay attention whenever they talk about uh, members of the leisure congress or, or the the board of governors it's names like turner and Dole and Sony and Warner and and oh, yeah, uh, Warner. Uh, Saud and like you know people who come from families that now currently are among the wealthiest billionaires in the world. They're yeah. just missing yeah. Amazon and Disney. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're just missing Bezos. Yeah. Uh, well, to to be fair, Gates. when when he wrote this book, Amazon yeah, wasn't yeah. really a thing yet. Yeah. So Lockheed I think it was, I think it was just joking. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Um, Heck yes. Uh, a trap that a lot of authors uh, who write science fiction in the near future fall into is nailing down things too precisely. Um, sure. There are, like you were just saying, there's some examples of things like this. When we look back on it, it seems kind of dated. Like a, we have yep. that a mere 30 years after this book was written as opposed to 200. Ender's Game is the same way. There's yeah. lots of stuff like that. Yep, um, yep. The way to counter it yeah. is partially what he's been doing in this book by not getting too specific. It serves, it serves two point. functions. You avoid that uh, trap of becoming outdated quickly, mm-hmm. and it lends elements of mystery and imagination to a text that, you know, any, any sci-fi Damn. fantasy adventure book could use that. Yeah, exactly. I had only been considering that second part. The first part is a damn good point, though. Damn. Okay, anyway, um, just a couple, uh, that's Drew, you had something to add? I just got a couple little stylistic so things I, to get out I of So I want to jump off here. a little bit from my point about how Chapter Zero is its own Ooh, yeah. short story that is also part of the larger narrative of the novel. Okay. And there's another part of this book that has a sort of non-traditional, discrete narrative going on. And that is, at the end of every chapter, uh, Stover has a brief, you know, paragraph or two section that takes a step back, and it it is it presents as being written by somebody on Overworld. 
telling the story of Blade of Tai Shao, but in a mythological context. And so we get these, uh, um, we get the same characters, but they're mythologized. You know, so mm. at the end of chapter zero, for instance, this section it starts with, she was only a goddess part-time, but she loved her job and she was good at it. She went to and fro upon the earth and walked up and down in it, and where she strode bloomed flowers and sprouted grain. When she spread her hand, the winter was mild and the harvest bountiful. A summer storm brought showers warm and sweet as a sunlit pond, and the spring sang of things green and, and growing. You know, and then it was said she had a human lover in some far-off place, that for half the year she took the form of mortal woman and lived in peace with her lover and her human child. Others said her lover was himself a god, her shadow self, a dark angel of slaughter and destruction, and that the half of each year she spent at his side was the world's ransom, that she paid with her body to keep him beyond the walls of time and preserve the peace of the good land. You know, so as is common with such tales, both were true and false, and to the same degree. And then, Damn. you know, it goes on and it ends with, for the scent of her green and growing land troubled the slumber of another god, a blind and nameless god, a god of dust and ashes, whose merest dream can kill. And, and he, the way he uses these little myth chunks at the end of each chapter is that they inform what's about to happen in the next chapter, but it's in a really cryptic way. It's fairly easy to suss out who the characters are, who the players in the myth are analogous to. Like, the part-time mm -hmm. goddess, obviously, is Pallas Rill. The dark angel, her husband, is Cain. Uh, the, the blind god is the god of dust and ashes, you know. And then there are things like, um, uh, there's the god who was once, or, or the man who was once a god, and that's Tan Elkoth. And there's, uh, um, the, the, the crippled knight, or the crooked knight. Yes. And that is Chris Hansen. And that, and that talks about how oh, I didn't put that one know, together. How he and I think that's where it starts. Actually, the very first uh, intro, maybe it talks about how they're they're twins, right? It was one of my favorite parts of the book. Yeah, a tale is told of twin boys born to different mothers. One is dark by nature, the other light. One is rich, the other poor. One is harsh, the other gentle. One is forever youthful, the other old before his time. One is mortal. They share no bond of blood or sympathy, but they are twins nonetheless. They each live without ever knowing that they are brothers. They each die fighting the blind god. And that's how the book starts. Mm -hmm. And and so Good that's point. talking about Chris and Hari. Ominous. Yeah. yeah. And and uh But but of course, you know, because this is couched in this mythic uh context there's metaphor involved, you know? And so saying they each die fighting the blind God can mean so many different things. And that's a great hook at the beginning of the story where you're reading this and you think, okay, well, this sounds like the dark one, the one who's violent. That sounds like Cain to me. I wonder who the light twin is going to be. Oh, they both die fighting the <laughs> blind God. Oh, wow. But then we just finished a book called Heroes Die in which Cain, our hero, or our anti-hero, did not actually die. He only died metaphorically. You know, so we have a we have an open-ended but very compelling hook used in the context of this myth right from the get-go. And for each chapter, at the end of each chapter, there's a new chunk of myth that 
you know, okay. digs the hook in further. And so Stover is writing a novel here that has a short story to kick it off, and it has this ongoing myth that he's constructing piecemeal throughout it. So he's really writing kind of three different narratives in one book, and it reminds me a little bit of how Brandon Sanderson talks about the way he writes the Stormlight Archive, where sure, yeah. he considers each uh, Stormlight book to be three books in one, and a novella, and several short stories, and that's what the interludes are. The interludes are each short stories, and then each book will have one recurring interlude character, and all those scenes taken together form the novella. So, uh, you know, in, in the way of Kings, for instance, that's Zeth, and, you know. But it, it it's an interesting thing seeing another author writing this sort of a, a complex, layered narrative style mm -hmm. way, way, way before Brandon Sanderson did that. I mean, you know, The Way of Kings was, what, 2010? And, 2010, yeah, September and, 30th, uh, I think it was. And, and Blade of Taishao came out, what, 2000? 2001. 2001. Yeah. I looked it up when I was so. uh, looking at the technology differences, yeah. <laughs> um, this is something I also noticed. That, again, I was I was waiting for you to bring up Brandon Sanderson because, uh, of course, not just Brandon Sanderson, but he, well, he did it. Uh, I noticed a lot of it throughout the entirety of The Wheel of Time. So speaking, of course, of Robert Jordan, um, which who, who unfortunately passed away in 2007, and then Brandon Sanderson took over his last uh, three novels for us. But we, we do get a lot of this kind of, these little snippets, these these step backs, or steps back, I should say, and these little um, differing angles in, in which we get to view these current events that are unfolding in front of our eyes from a much more uh, detached perspective, this kind of mythological um, history. Sorry, history. And uh, I, there was a lot of it, in, in especially in uh, the last Wheel of Time book, uh, the, A Memory of Light. Um, of course, we were getting all the, a lot of these points from Loyal. I do think that's a good point, where there's... Uh... I noticed this with Jordan to start with. My, by myself, uh, I saw that a lot with Robert Jordan as well. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that until you brought that up, where there are... There are points usually at the end of books and, in the Wheel of yeah, Time, chapter where yeah. where the narrator pulls out into into an omniscient narrator, not a limited third person, but an omniscient mm -hmm. third person. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, inside jokes! I um, love it. But where where we get sort of a, a removed view of the way news travels across the land and how news morphs as the story, you know, is, yeah. is repeated and, and, uh, but, but even with that though, it doesn't have this flavor of mythology that well, it, each Stover one is, gives, is you know, still written from the perspective of somebody who signs it as so-and-so-and-so the fourth age. So you, oh, you're you, talking about the epigraphs. I'm t yeah. The epigraphs. Yeah. Like at oh, the very oh. end of the books, you get this kind of whole, I don't know, very flowery kind of mythologized, is that a word? Mythologize? It is now. I don't it give a shit a if it's not. Is it? Well, thank uh, you. You're talking about the prophecies. These are prophecies yeah. and foretellings and things, and then histories that are written in the fourth age. In the wheel okay. of time. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. for example, at the end of the of the well, you know, let's not let's not go into detail. Yeah. yeah. So what I was thinking <laughs> no. of was like, for instance, like in a lot of the epilogues in the wheel of time, where where it'll talk about like you know the the previous chapter will end with like a battle. And then the next chapter, the narrator pulls out and do an omniscient point of view and talks about mm. how the news of this battle spread like oh, wildfire. Yeah, and yeah, in the okay. telling, it changed and all of this stuff. 
Yes. But, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I see where where yeah, the we were talking about two different things, but amusingly, yeah. there are two different things <laughs> that are similar to yeah. what Stover is doing in Absolutely. the Wheel of Time. Not to mention um, right next to each other on the page more often. Than literally, not. yeah, which is probably where half the confusion just came from. Yeah. Um, uh, before we get into, I know we haven't even really gotten into the characters yet. And I want to do that briefly, or uh, not briefly, shortly. But I do want to get a couple little aesthetic things out of the way again. Um, I, I I do want to say that I did find Stover's uh, approach to humor in this novel was it was a little more uh, advanced, a little more developed, if you want to use that word. Um, I really, really appreciated, like, we have a bountiful in its, like, selection of epic and hilarious one-liners already in Heroes Die, but I've, I've started to notice more situational comedy as well. Mm-hmm. For example, I love the whole Tonel Koth is a cyber weapon scene after Hari interrupts his class. Yeah. That was awesome. I, I was <laughs> giggling to myself the whole time I read that. And another example would be, um, as Drew, as you put it to me in our, uh, in our chat at one point, Tonel Koth's interview with Jed Clearlake yeah. in chapter 10 or 11, where, where you described it as Hollywood interviews God. And I yeah. love that. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was really good. What did you guys think of the, of the humor in this book? Uh, so there's definitely lots of humor. Um, and and it's, it's good that there is because otherwise, I mean, man, I don't know if I can yeah. get through this book without the humor. <laughs> uh, there, oh yeah, we'll get to that. There are lots of, I mean, one of my favorite lines is actually early on when, when Kane first uh, meets up with Tanelkoth in chapter one and, and, uh, and Tanelkoth is doing his, you know, uh, psychoanalyzing shtick while they're walking <laughs> through the streets <laughs> of San Francisco. I think I, I'm looking at that same line right here. Go ahead. And, uh, and, and he says, you know, it is a curiously consistent characteristic of yours, Kane, that you always seem to be just a bit smarter than I anticipate. And Kane says, yeah, sure. I'm a genius with a capital J. <laughs> oh, okay. That's what you're talking about. <laughs> that was you pretty know, they, good. I Go ahead. He, but So it's a one-liner still, but that one-liner is couched in character development. Yeah. And it's and it's couched in, in probably the most dynamic and interesting relationship between characters through the two books yeah. so far. You know, that being Kane and Milecoth or Tanelkoth. You know, and so yeah. he he still has his one-liners and he has his humor, but it often does double duty, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the 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 one-liner I thought you were about to say was when Kane turned to Tonelkoth and said, "Oh, that reminds me, I don't think I've told you to go fuck yourself lately." Yeah, <laughs> that one gave me a, that one gave me a chuckle. Um, but yeah, oh. and, and again, as you just t- touched on that dynamic between uh, Tonelkoth and and Kane, that whole like interaction, that chemistry there, I want to talk about that a lot when we get to those characters. For mm-hmm. sure. Oh yeah, um, and uh, I guess just the last last point I had, stylistically speaking, was just this little point I found at the very end of chapter ten from Delian's point of view. Delian, 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 whatever. Yeah. Um, I, I there I found this little interesting bit of onomatopoeia that I really liked. Oh. We we hear this arrow fly past, and it's P H F F T H P. It goes. I love it. <laughs> I love that sound. It's such anybody like a gamer like myself who like uses a lot of bows and arrows and crossbows. That little. I love that. It's it's such a good sound. It's very very satisfying. Yeah. Um, yeah. Striking or not, I think that one just passed by him, but it's still. I love. It's just a great sound. Yeah, and and so I I want to go back and do a talk about another line that I had highlighted that in, in contest, <laughs> Oh my gosh, you're going to, sorry. You're going to kill I me. I can't stop. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, in context, it's not really funny, but in a different context, it could be kind of a, a hilarious one-liner. And it's when, um, uh, back in Chapter Zero, when Administrator Chandra comes into, you know, the nursing ward where Chris is recovering and Hari is there. And, uh, and he's talking about, you know, how horrible the injuries were to all of these, you know, combat yeah. school students that Hari just absolutely destroyed in the bathroom fight. And, uh, and Chandra is talking about, you know, like, why did it have to be this way? Was there no other choice? And it says, he shook his head and his eyes glistened with unshed tears. Couldn't you have asked? Oh, yeah, that was brutal. And in this, so in this context, it's heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. Because this is, you know, at the, you know, near the end of chapter zero, toward the end of this short story, where we've had a a climax already occur, all the buildup, the climax has occurred, and we're now in the denouement. And having this one line tossed in that in a different context of like, oh, you know, couldn't you have asked, man? You know, like... That, except here, it gives you an idea of what could have been. Sure. How how this story that turned out reasonably well for our <laughs> heroes, not reasonably, perfectly by any means, but word, reasonably yeah. well, how objective. it could have gone differently and perhaps turned out better for them. Do you guys want to start discussing our characters? Because we're we're starting to get uh, a little long if we want to finish in a reasonable time today. So obviously, first and foremost, let's get our our hero or anti-hero out of the way, Mr. Harry Michelson slash Kane. <laughs> is he even an anti-hero? I do think he's an anti-hero, yes. I mean, is he not just a villain to some people? Well, that's the point of an anti-hero. I heard Drew mention him as being an anti-hero earlier in this podcast, and I thought, oh, that's, that's an he, interesting... He yeah, is okay, an anti-hero <laughs> because he is fighting the villain. You know, he's... In, the villain here clearly is not king. The villain is the blind god. Like, oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's, it, he, from a certain perspective, he's an enemy, but that is the case with all, you know, all protagonists. Sure, and that's why we have yeah. we have books, you know, being written from the Dark Lord's perspective and stuff like that. Now, it, it's also but, the case with many good villains too. Like yes. take take for example, uh, there are many villains. I'm yeah. just going to go with one that everyone's going to recognize: Darth Vader. Mm -hmm. Darth Vader will not um, go Darth out of his way to cause destruction or mayhem because that's not useful to him. He's motivated by yeah. forces that are more complicated than just the uh, uh, exercise of evil. Right? Yeah. Now, if sure. you get in his sure. way, he will jack you up without mercy. <laughs> yes. And, I mean, does that not sound like Cain a little bit? Except the story, like, so A, the story is not from Darth Vader's perspective. Uh, I would say maybe in the prequel trilogy you could call Anakin Skywalker an anti-hero. Okay. But but by the time he becomes, by the time he becomes Darth Vader, he is evil. He, he yes. He kills people indiscriminately. He, you know, his subordinate messes up once, and he, you know, strangles him to death and throws his body across the hallway, or you know, things like that. He is evil. Um, Kane is not evil like that. Kane is still fighting for, as we see, like, uh, a. 
more selfless good, especially in Blade of Taishal. You know, this was a talking point we had at the end of Heroes Die, where, Pat, you brought up how Kane is willing to do whatever he needs to do for what he wants at the expense of all else. And, and we brought up that one quote where he says, you know, mm. fuck the city, I'd see the world burn to save her, <laughs> you know. Um, but in this, yeah. in this now, there's a different kind of Kane where he is doing things that he know or he he knows can uh mess with his life that he's trying to build to save overworld. Mm-hmm. You know, he's yes. he's much more attached to overworld like than he is to earth. And it's not really hard yeah. to see why <laughs> yeah. because I mean for, no, and for all its downsides overworld is a better place to live, <laughs> I'd argue. Yeah, yeah, overworld is like an idyllic fantasy middle ages paradise and earth is a blasted hellscape (laughs) (laughs) yeah it definitely is it's always the future is always dystopian isn't Mm -hmm. it it's always it's always dark and gritty and just right i'm kind of waiting for the futuristic novel where like everything's fine and everyone's happy that's true yeah there's not really much conflict going to be happening so so the point Uh, though with the whole blasted hellscape thing is that we now have an in-universe, like, really concrete um, reasoning behind this. The blind god. Mm-hmm. And and this is what humanity wants to turn Overworld into. And as we see in the first half of this, they are well on their way to turning Overworld into it. They, they've already, like, what, scalped two mountains and completely stripped mined them. And, and they're polluting rivers and building railroad tracks and, you know, and, and releasing horrific viruses upon the world um yeah so you know like you do yeah uh as you do you know what else do you do with a pristine untouched undisturbed landscape you, <laughs> you know it's not like we have a long history of doing yeah. that. rape the earth for its yeah. resources yeah. and so what you do. so kane is fighting against this kane is kane is i think more concretely a hero than an anti-hero in this book than he was in heroes die uh, i agree sure. i agree I, with yeah. that i agree with that uh, i do uh, i no, you go ahead. Okay, so I I just wanted to say that like okay, so at the going back to chapter zero really quickly, I would, the glimpse that we get of a uh, young Harry Michelson, it's pretty terrifying. Uh, the adult version, although in you know many ways way more badass, wasn't anything like the impulsively violent and overcompensating teenager mm-hmm. that he once was, uh, which I think draws up an interesting question. You know, was Kane with him even then? Uh, his narrative begins, of course, very, pretty brutally. Uh, even more, more, like even more terrifying than the borderline sociopathic teenager is the adult Harry Michelson, fallen from glory. It, we get this depiction of his life that he, as he lives it now. Yeah. Like yikes. On on one hand, I can say, and I'm I'm comfortable with saying, I I can empathize with the alcohol addiction, with the endless hangovers. I've been there. Uh, but the vivid glimpse that we get of his ruined life of him sitting on the toilet with shit caking his hands and he's he's sobbing uncontrollably and he's 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 pounding his knees after failing to and I quote manually disimpact his bowels. Uh yeah. First off, Sover must have done some homework, uh clearly. Yikes. Yeah. I've I've never really given much thought to those kinds of disabilities myself. It it's it's another mark in Stover's favor, uh, I guess, making me aware and kind of even grateful that my legs yeah. were 
Yeah, I suppose. Um, and I can also say that, quite honestly, that it, my appreciation for the struggles of anyone disabled in that way has skyrocketed. There's a whole lot to look at that you really haven't really considered um, in those moments that that demonstrated mm-hmm. that. Um, but again, spe- specifically about Kane, though, getting back, like um, his moments in this book, the way his character. Um, still has room to grow. Uh, we get this brilliant, shining moment of triumph when uh, that Hari gave me as a reader, when uh, I think it was during chapter four, when he finally figured out who that unnamed speaker was in the footage from Overworld. Oh, yeah. He thinks, you want my help, Chris? And then he says, you'll fucking well get it. Yeah. I was so excited in that moment. I literally pumped my arm in the air like, yes, yes, <laughs> yes. You help him. It was, it was just awesome. And then the way, uh, I think it, yeah, that chapter ended, he goes, hey, how about that? My fucking back doesn't yeah. hurt. You know, I, I, it's it's really good to see. Like, it's really hard to read a lot of things from his point of view to begin with. But I do want to point out the fact that I think it's really great to see those little moments of Kane peeking through. I think Kane is going to help Hari through this. And, and indirectly, he's going to help the reader through these tough to read scenes as well from his that point brings of view. me to my i guess my only comment about kane so far in sure. this book and that's uh it's it's clear to me that uh the majority of hari's suffering on earth is uh, a reaction to the repression of kane he cannot be kane yeah, okay and it's been years but K- like kane is part of him whether he oh. likes it or not and, and and yeah, he figured out that at sometimes it's appropriate to to let Kane do the do whatever needs to be done, and sometimes Hari needs to do what needs to be done. But he went, he tried to go yeah. whole Hari, just like he went whole Kane mm-hmm. before heroes die. We get yeah. that impression. Mm-hmm. This is just Too this is just thing. the opposite extreme, and we are uh, looking at the consequences. Yes, I agree one hundred percent with mm-hmm. that. I think that's exactly what he's he's going for in in this book, where Heroes Die was all about his character development and accepting Hari, accepting that he is this kid who grew up in the labor slums and had to be smarter and had to be clever to yes. claw his way into a better life before becoming Kane and then seeing what Kane got him he went all into Kane and tried to abandon Hari and his life fell apart because of that and now he's going the other way and it's his life has excuse me fallen apart again and so he needs to find his balance uh I I very much agree with that Pat yeah yeah and drawing back to that what that really uh that brief point uh, I think both of you made this brief point um, earlier about our discussion with Kane, um, how he considers Overworld, not Earth, but Overworld to be yeah. home. Um, there is one specific quote that I have here, and um, I wrote down on my phone, I said, holy fucking shit, Stover, the writing is so good. <laughs> his timing, his cadence, Hari's point of view as he considers like the... In- pending doom on overworld <clears throat> i think is one of the greatest moments i've had so far in 14 weeks now of this podcast um <laughs> reading the subject material like this it, okay so i'm going to quote the text right here uh, it, he says this can't be happening it made him want to stand up and howl suddenly he comprehended tanel koth utterly he was being smothered choked to death 
Earth had forced itself down his throat and he was strangling on it. Overworld was the only place he'd ever been happy. Overworld was freedom. Overworld was life. Overworld was home. Yep. Um, so I think that really drives home that point that, you know, Kane Hari really <laughs> doesn't feel this this, this strong attachment mm-hmm. with with Earth as, like in the way that he does mm-hmm. with Overworld. And it really drew, it gave a lot more context and a lot more weight to his decision to, when he sees, he, he recognizes his friend, Chris Hansen, and he says, you want my help? You'll fucking get it. It's it's such a pivotal shift in the moment from him, from Kane feeling sorry for himself to deciding, okay, I have something to focus on. I have a target in front of me. And I think this is something that um, Tonel Koth said about Kane during this first half of the book. I can't remember exactly where, but he said something along the lines of, you have presented a clear target to Kane, yeah. and that means he is going yeah. to win. Yeah, I'm paraphrasing. I don't know exactly how it was, but yeah, it's it's when Kalakoff is, like is talking to the board of governors yeah. and telling them their the mistakes and, yeah. and telling them how he can solve their Kane problem for them. Um, mm-hmm. But so I I want to stay on Kane, but I want to take sort of a step back and look at the writing perspective of this. Sure, sure. And okay. that is Kane's character arc in this book is really interesting. It's it's strange. A lot of books, you know, especially in uh, genre fiction, science fiction, fantasy, speculative fiction, whatever, um, you see sure. you see a general character arc where there's there's a challenge, an acceptance of the challenge, and then there's work, a, like an upward moving uh, progression that is usually presented as, oh, this is going to work, and then about two-thirds, maybe three-quarters of the way through the book, there's this huge problem that comes out of nowhere. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe you see it coming, maybe you don't. And and the hero is cut down and then has to like build and rebuild and claw their way back to a hopefully yeah, a satisfying conclusion. <clears throat> and we get that in mm-hmm. Heroes Die for the most part, right? You know, yeah. And in this book, uh, in Blade of Taishal... It is a very different character arc. He accepts the challenge early on and is immediately undercut. And so it was, I mean, what was it? Chapter five or six when he's arrested by the social police for forcible contact, uh, uh, yeah. upcast. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and his whole life falls apart. And not even halfway through the book, he fails and Shauna is killed right in front of him. And... Yeah. And you know, it's it's sorry, going go back to, uh, you know, and this is a thing that I heard from multiple writing teachers during my you know time and taking writing classes in high school and college and and so forth. Um, they'll they'll talk about the way to make an interesting story, an interesting conflict and plot is you think of the worst thing you can do to your main character, and then you do it. And in this book, <laughs> in this book, yeah. Stover thought, what's the worst thing I can do to Kane? And he did it. And then he's like, hmm, what can I do worse I can make that than worse. that? Yes. And then he does oh, that too. And then he thinks, oh, And then he over. does that and for a hundred steps and he takes those final and ten he is what thinks, he ends up what's with. the worst thing I can do to my readers? Huh? And then he does that. <laughs> I mean, the, instead of this steady progression of, you know, it, I mean, this yeah. this is an absolute freefall of a character arc where Kane just mm. goes down and down and down. And it, it is so 
emotionally taxing for Kane that it becomes emotionally taxing for the reader. And, you know, with the first yeah. time I read this book, it took me about two and a half months to read. It's a very good book, but I had to put it down and I had to take breaks because it, it was hard to read. Because I just, I mean, you know, my yeah. soul couldn't take reading. Yeah. Another horrible thing happening to Cain. One feels like a victim of abuse. You know, and after and so reading this book. No, definitely. And so where we leave off in in this book, uh, in in the first half here at the end of chapter eleven, in my opinion, isn't even the bottom for Cain. He's close, but he's not really? at the bottom yet. Knowing what you know about you know, what's coming, you know, we're only halfway through the book. We still need to get that oh no yeah. moment three quarters or two thirds of the way through the well, book, you know, and like, that, that you would expect in a genre book. And, and, uh, at the same time though, where we left off feels more generally like the bottom point of the book because of <laughs> our <laughs> other isn't. characters, yeah. specifically Tanelkoth like and Arturo Kohlberg. Mm-hmm. Like seeing what, and I'm glad, I'm really glad you brought this up. This is this is perfect. That was a perfect transition to the next thing I wanted to talk about. Uh, seeing what Stover is doing, specifically talking about what you were saying before, what he's doing to Hari, uh, it's starting to make me just outright sick in some cases. <laughs> we we have our own entirely separate discussion about the nature of, the, of the, some of the content of this book. Um, chapter nine. I want to say was incredibly brutal. I mean, anybody who who has read obviously the first half of the book will will probably agree. I'm just saying that I, it's 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 terrible. I I think we could contain our discussion about the absolute necessity of the graphic content or the level of graphic content in this book to our like our our discussion perhaps about Kohlberg, uh, because we don't get a lot from Kohlberg, but boy <laughs> oh boy is the little that we get. More oh, than oh, God, yeah. So do you guys want to discuss Colbert? Yes. Do you want to move on to there before we, yeah. we talk about Tanelkoff and, and Palace Real? Okay. With the reluctance so, <clears throat> of Colbert. Uh, that I would feel um, climbing I... into a sewer. Yeah, let's talk about Colbert. <laughs> this is alright, everybody. Get your get your raincoats on. This is where it gets messy. Um, oh, it's so bad. Oh god. So so holy fucking shit. Uh, we have some heavy heavy sorry, heavy discussion about this. I wanna say I'll start off by saying that this book is, without a doubt, the most brutal thing I've ever read. Um, I've never been a fan of authors pointlessly torturing their characters, or at least what I consider to be pointless torture. You know, main, secondary, tertiary, yeah. or, or yeah. otherwise. But the scene immediately following Kohlberg's possession, if you yeah. want to call it that, was this. Okay, well, I was pretty disgusted right off the bat. It wasn't a deal-breaker. Um, it wasn't a particularly <laughs> enjoyable read no. either. Uh, like, but then literally every scene with Kohlberg that follows, however, stands equal to none in some of the most depraved, perverted, filthy, abhorrent content I've ever beheld on this green earth. Yeah. How yeah. about you? I, I don't think I can say it any better. You know, it starts off with, you know, and, and here's your trigger warning. You know, if, if really, really disturbing content is not... Not mm -hmm. what you want to hear. You may want to skip ahead a bit, but, but ah, it, uh, they would have put the book down already it, by this you point. Know, when when Kohlberg accepts service on his screen and is sure. and becomes essentially the host of the Blind God, and he, I mean, the, what he does to his floor boss is, is so yeah, just horrific. Yeah. And then and then what is it four 
three or four chapters later when we get Tanelkoff's point mm-hmm. of view and he's descending into Kohlberg's den. His den, his lair. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the way that Drew put it, I think, was his, uh, lair. Den. Or was it, uh, den. den. Yeah. It was, uh, den. I, I said that in that moment. I'm, that's from now on, every time we discuss this scene, I want to talk about his, uh, dot, 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 like ellipses, den. Every time. <laughs> his anyway, sorry, on, his that. endurance of hate. Yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's horrific, but the, probably the most disturbing thing to me is that that very first time when Tanelkoff walks into the main room and he sees Kohlberg yes. raping this woman and talks about how he's like, that, that one of her breasts has been chewed off and then he lowers his head and bites into her other breast. But the fact that one of them has been chewed off, I don't know if this was on purpose, but the impression I got from that was that this is the same woman. This is the floor boss. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's, what I, that's and, the impression but, that I got. But the implications of that, that Kohlberg has been tormenting this woman. You know, he, he killed... I mean, you know, there's bodies torn to pieces all over the place and people piled up against the walls, shot to death and all this stuff. He killed everybody else, except for maybe a couple other people. But he specifically kept the floor boss alive and has been tormenting her for days. And it's not until this scene when Tanakoth comes in that she finally succumbs to shock and dies. And just that, I mean, that was so... awful to consider yeah that's all you need to say well, well uh, that was then, so four and a half seconds of silence is what that was that and was... then it gets the scene gets even worse from there because it's you know Colbert turns and, and speaks with Tanelkoff and you have a character mm-hmm. whose head you've been in and you're used to him being more or less omnipotent he's incredibly s- smart he's strong he's huge he's powerful all this stuff and in this moment he loses all of that. Yeah. And even though and he makes even though Tanelkoff is like you're rooting against him, you know? You're rooting for him against Kohlberg. And there's a comfort in that because you're like, wow, he's so formidable. I'm I'm rooting for him. I feel comfortable in this situation. And then it's all ripped out mm-hmm. from under him in in just the most horrible way where where he finds out how utterly wrong he was how how poorly he calculated his moves and and it culminates in Colbert chewing off his finger until he agrees to to serve Colberg and understand and then he passes out and he wakes up with his head in Colberg's lap and Colberg has this just psychologically horrible conversation where he breaks down Tanelkoff, because Tanelkoff knows the, the utter depths to which Kohlberg will go to get what he wants. And, I mean, there's the visceral, graphic, bloody horror, you know, the, the violence that's in these books, but this scene particularly was the most difficult for me because it has all of that physical violence, and it has a psychological element that just mm-hmm. is it's a double whammy. I mean, the first time I read that book, I had to put it down after that mm-hmm. scene and I didn't pick it up for about 2 weeks. 
Yeah, no. Like, I, like the amount of description that we get, necessary or otherwise, if you feel that way, the, the de- depraved actions of this kind of new villain. Like, there was a point where I literally gagged with disgust. Oh, I believe like, it. I wanted to lay on my side and pour bleach into my ears, hoping that would erase what I had just read. And part of me still wishes that would work. And, and to, this, to this moment here, I'm still thinking, God damn it, Stover. Was that really necessary? Yes. Um, um. And I honestly don't know if a lot of it is. I can't, like, it, I obviously I want to reserve judgment until the end of the book or maybe even the end of the series as a, as a first-time reader. So I don't have the same perspective on it as somebody who is reading it for the second or third or umpteenth well, time. Taking, it up, taking but, it up to this point, no, go ahead. Um, my two cents is that it's not necessary. Um, okay, yeah. Once we have gotten into the gap cycle, then I can point to some examples of... of mm. uh, brutality in the text that is necessary but uh in for the story to move along for us to understand the stakes for us to understand the characters um the nuances etc this level is not needed no um and i think it has uh, the overall effect of making uh the book weaker substantially i'm not quite okay. ready to yeah. go into why I don't like some of the things about the series as a whole just yet in this part. Maybe I can touch on it at sure, sure. Uh, That's uh, fair. next That's episode. Fair. Um, but the gratuity uh, plays a big role in that. I think if it was toned down a little bit, mm-hmm. maybe even a lot of it, um, <clears throat> we'd be in better shape. Yeah, so I I yeah. mostly agree with Pat here. Um, and... I think I 100% agree with that. And Pat. I'm, I'm going to yeah. No, sorry, go on. I'm going to go go to uh the review of Blade of Taishal that I wrote um on on my blog years ago, first time I read it. Uh sure. Well, and and so I I basically I gave it three and a half stars out of 5. And I'm not going to spoil, you know, things at the end or anything, but uh sure. I specifically said that Blade of Taishal spends so much energy crushing every aspect of hope, of goodness in the characters' lives, and it did it in such horrific fashion that it was physically exhausting to read. Mm. And and so, and okay. so I said, this is a difficult book to read. The relentless destruction of the main characters is ultimately necessary for their eventual resolutions, but is exhausting. It's depressing and it's stomach turning. And and I called it mm-hmm. in in this review. I called it a flawed masterpiece because there are things he does in this book that are absolutely incredible. Isn't that a bit of an oxymoron, though? A flawed masterpiece. Well, I suppose if the flaw is part of the art, yeah, though. Never mind. Uh, sorry. Go on. I I actually think tying this back into Blade of Taishal itself. You think about um, Tanakos David. It's his masterpiece, yes. right? But it didn't mm-hmm. turn out the way he wanted it to. You know? He, as... as well, it burned. Well, well no, but, I mean, but that's, before, no. before it was destroyed, he's looking at it and he realizes, I didn't mean to do that. Yeah, think, he has a whole scene where he, he considers the, oh, the philosophy of not being able to control his hand and and how how the, the, the touch of the, you know, chisel can change based on the whims of destiny instead of his own creation. Oh, no, no, no. Okay, I have a... 
a whole bunch to talk about on this but, subject. But Sorry, so, okay, I, I understand what you're saying. But though. so yeah. it's Stover did what he set out to do in this book, mm-hmm. but in the execution of it, there are flaws. So this is a a literary masterwork, I think, in the science fiction fantasy genres. There, and I'll get into this much more at the end of the book. But but even okay. even as far as we are now, we have chapter zero. We have this layered literary narrative. We have much more involved themes and more developed characters and real questions for the reader to to dig into. Even more so from Heroes Die, where we had admittedly some some pretty solid you know philosophical discussions you know to look at. But the level of violence, the graphic nature of some of the scenes in this book is unnecessary. And it makes a big impact on the book to the point where I rated it three and a half stars out of five instead of what probably could have been a five star book. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. If, if it wasn't for the, the, the blatant kind of gratuity of some of the worst scenes in this book i would probably be tempted to say that this book is a five out of five because i again really quickly discussing stover's actual his prose he is a he's a brilliant technical writer he he his cadence specifically his timing is i is is phenomenal but I want to also discuss really quick, like again, since this is, this is the perfect area for it. Even though Kohlberg, we're still technically on the character of Kohlberg, I guess. He, even though Kohlberg was not involved in this scene, I still want to talk really, just really quickly about Chapter Nine. Yes, because it fits our theme at the moment of, you know, gratuitous violence and is it or, or graphic content? Is it really necessary torture? Um, like as and I. I'm starting to take back what I've said in previous episodes about this series, honestly. Scenes like this, this ninth chapter, of course, where we get from uh, Kane's point of view, or Hari's point of view, um, this 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 ritual. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's like, that scene, it's really starting to, it's not doing any favors, let's put it that way, to the point that I made previously about the graphic content accentuating the difficult scenes rather than dominating mm-hmm. them. Um, that scene, which of course is, you know, again, like that ritual, um, I think it only really should have been half as long uh, if it wanted to claim that it still had any yeah. kind of basis in, okay, well, let's, let's accentuate the scenes rather than dominate them with this kind of torture, with this darkness. And I really say that I really, th- I think Stover is walking this dangerous line between grimdark and outright sadomasochistic fantasy. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I mean, I, I'm sure it's not much coming from little old me, but I thoroughly disagree. Uh, so you know, we we had kind of a discussion uh, on on Facebook the other day about the graphic nature of Heroes Die versus Blade of Taishao, and you brought up the the escape from the dungeon in Heroes Die and how and how awful that was, where they're literally swimming, like pulling themselves through yeah. a pile of human yeah. excrement and rotting corpses. Swimming, swimming through rotting corpses that have yeah. been marinating in human but, shit. But yes. but so where where the difference wasn't, and this was my point, was that that scene lasts like a paragraph or two. You know, there's there's a very brief yeah. description of like it's you brief. know like the wet squelching thump as they land in the pile and mm-hmm. then they pull out and then they're gone. Whereas in Blade yes. of Taishao, there are similar opportunities. And yeah. I described it as borderline loving attention to detail in them. That is yeah. not ne- yeah. necessary. It's, you know, it, it, it's, yeah. 
I, I, we agree on that. Like uh, that same <clears throat> scene, if Stover had had included that same scene, the shaft in this book, I feel like would have been uh, twenty five pages. Mm. You know, just dropping into yeah, through yeah. the shaft. Like so, I, you know. I, so I, so there's, I think there's a pretty notable stylistic change from uh, Heroes Die to Blade of Taishal. And I will say, without spoiling anything, I think Stover realized that, and he dials it back in the third and fourth books okay. of the series. Blade of Taishal is, without cool. a doubt, the darkest. Oh, yeah. So. Okay, good. That makes me feel better about continuing yeah, forward yeah. with the series. No, okay. it's, it's not one of those things that just gets worse and worse and worse. We've... we've. I mean, I, I would definitely want to continue have anyway. I mean, the series We haven't quite peaked yet, but we're close. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It, 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 but it makes me feel more comfortable with going mm-hmm. forward. Thank you. Okay, so sorry. For, go ahead. For talking about Kohlberg, we haven't talked about him very much. Um, one point that I want to make is that because of these scenes, I never bought the theme that the God of Dust and Ashes was this like purely impersonal um, malevolence or force of destruction or entropy. Now, entropy in its purest state is uh, disinterested, but. But Kohlberg is not disinterested. He keeps a specific woman alive who wronged him. He's he's uh, out to get Cain. Um, if it was really disinterested, these things would be falling on the just and the unjust alike. There would be no distinction between who succumbed to his wrath so, and, and those who don't. So it's just pure randomness. The way I've uh, kind of internalize the idea of the blind god, the god of dust and ashes, is that Kohlberg is a vessel for its power, but isn't necessarily the personification of it, and that instead the personification is supposed to be the social police, Uh, who do fall on both ends of that spectrum, where they maintain order, and they ostensibly are a force for the greater good, but are also more than capable of evils. Uh, and, 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 and at the direction of the sort of the hand of the blind god, as I see it, the board of governors. And, and the, uh, the symbolism of the, the blank screen with the studio logo on it and uh-huh. the impersonal digitized voice. And, uh, and, and that they simply wanted to find an agent to be more immediately on the scene and granted the blind god's power to Kohlberg and Kohlberg became a wild card. Sure. Because of that. Uh, what would what would you sure. say if if I said, I mean, even the social police and, well, and the board of governors and by extension the social police, they're not free from uh, any sort of bias either. They, uh, they certainly have their motivations and... Uh, Yes. Goals and reasons um, for doing what they're doing that can presume, I mean, they think will benefit them. Yeah, but, I mean, you have to think about the philosophical idea behind the blind god. It's not a an unbiased god. It's a god with the interest of the advancement of humanity at heart. <laughs> and it's, it's a god whose interest is the consumption and utilization of resources. And, and they talk about how... The, the good and the bad, you know, the blind god's hand on the world is the creation of 
highways and bridges and buildings yes. and beautiful structures. Efficiency and, and consumption, I think, is the The strip point. mining and deforestation and pollution of lakes and things like that. It's, it's all about the use of resources for the selfish interests of humanity. But yeah, exactly. And and so um, Kohlberg, who is an inherently selfish man, was a, a perfect tool for the blind god, but retained his autonomy and then kind of gave his tint on things and <clears throat> took that power for himself and did everything his heart desired, the deepest, darkest depths of his soul desired, once he was unbridled. Hmm. Whereas the Board of Governors is more just like, yeah, let's let's fix our population overpopulation problem and let's uh, replenish our, our dwindling resources. Yeah. Um, on a more philosophical note, touching on this subject, um, uh, consumerism is often conflated with destruction. And that's certainly, yeah. as you were just describing, personified in the blind god. Mm -hmm. But... I don't I don't okay, yeah. I don't buy this because we as rational people know that yeah to build things you have to consume but there comes a point where you will run out of the thing you are consuming. Yes. However, that's not the end of the story because some things are replenishable. Mm -hmm. And so the way forward, the best way forward, the most efficient way isn't just to blindly consume you consume, yes. but you also set up things to replenish and replace the things that you consume, which is totally possible. That's how mm -hmm. economies work. That's why we live in a relatively stable yeah. environment, because we have these systems set up. Yeah. So... Yeah, well, but that's not exactly what Yeah, well, I think, I think there's an operative word there, and that was what you said that's yourself. Like blind, you said we don't right? blindly move forward. Exactly. The blind god is blind. Yeah. So exactly. it just the eats. blind god is the one who is not not troubling itself with, you know, efficiency. It's just mindless yeah. kind yeah. of impersonal. My, my point is that this that this, this entity is kind of incongruous to me because of that, because it seems to me that in a rational universe, it wouldn't turn out that way. That that the blind god wouldn't be in fact. Uh, I mean, I, I'm well, willing to suspend. This is fantasy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like this podcast has suddenly turned into that episode, like at the end of every episode, that 70s show where we're all the stories yeah. sitting around the table and they're just talking about it's their not ideas necessarily going back bad. and forth. And yeah, yeah I'm, I'm willing to suspend my disbelief on this point, but yeah. it's one of the things that occurred to me okay. um, about, about the underlining philosophy of the books. Okay. Which is a big subject yeah, that sure. I really want to like delve deeper into later on uh in subsequent episodes yeah and do you guys have anything else uh, specifically about kohlberg that you wanted to get out nah. of the way or should we move on to tunnel Koth? i yeah uh, let's hop on to tunnel Koth and then yeah we we should we should get moving <laughs> yeah i would think that that's just my, my my little concern now is that at this point i'm looking at we're looking at like an hour and 20 minutes so far Something 25 like on yeah. this podcast yeah. And we still have some characters to go through, let alone impre final mm -hmm. impressions and then the final Well, draft. luckily... So in the interest of keeping this into a consumable time frame, what's luckily, up? Luckily, we don't have, I mean, that much to talk about with Tanelkoth just yet. Yeah. Um, oh, I have a shitload right now, though. <laughs> I mean, so far to me, his arc can be summed up in his overconfidence is 
revealed to be the uh, 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 hubris. It's hubris. hubris. Yeah, it's, it's See, revealed I'm... to him though. Sorry, that, go ahead. That he is not ready. And he is not prepared for all the shit that he's been unleashing. He does not understand the stakes, like Drew said earlier. His been his calculations, his moves have been all wrong from the start. So he's hmm. he is not limitless I... anymore. And maybe he's finally coming to terms with how real his name truly is to him now. I'm trying to find the uh, the quote from I believe it's the end of chapter ten. The, the myth for mm-hmm. Tan Elkoff, where he comes into the myth story. And it is, uh, the man who had been a god paused upon the mountaintop, victorious. He had gained these heights by wit and will, and from here he could see before him the promised land. He could see from where he had come, he could see where he wished to go, but he failed to see where he was. For though he had been a god, he was now a man. From his very first step down the far side of the mountain, he began to learn what it is to be human. Yeah. That's... Yeah. yeah. Uh, Go ahead, bro. Uh, Tunnel Koth, specifically, is actually the character that I have the most talking points to discuss about. Oh. Um, I don't know, maybe it's just because I love that character <laughs> so much, but I like I have a, an entire page I'm looking at right now of, of notes about Tunnel Koth I wanted to discuss here. Alright. Uh, so... I guess I just I'll, I'll kick us off here. This is going to be me talking for the most part uh, for the next few minutes, I guess. But I want to say right off the bat that Tunnel Koth is definitely the main reason that I was so excited to dive into this book, coming out of Heroes Die. Not only because of how excellent of an antagonist he was in the first volume, but because of how we left him at the end of that book. He was trapped on Earth. He was a disarmed, impotent god trapped in his own version of Hell. And it's the perfect kind of fertile ground in which Stover can keep cultivating that character. Uh, I'll admit, I was expecting more of like a trapped, dangerous beast, barely kept in its chains kind of narrative for him. Um, But his his seemingly perfect amalgamation with that future society is a great way to remind us that this this man is not merely human. And I, I sincerely doubt any of us those on this podcast or those listening in their own advanced technology and culture that could blend in with that kind of futuristic mm-hmm. uh, dystopian society as easily much more as Tunnel Koth appears to. Uh, like, I, by the way, I loved the fact that he has a new name, you know, with a new meaning. I was limitless. That's just a really badass piece mm-hmm. of information, I think. Um, but his character starts in a very humble place. It's a very distinct counterpoint to how we meet him uh, in Heroes Die. He, the, at that point, he was a majestic, like self-assured, completely unflappable deity, like in the flesh, with the frame and the commanding presence to back it up. Uh, he still has a lot of that size, of course, but we see that six years of this Earth society and the kind of feeling of helplessness or powerlessness, perhaps, uh, that he gets from it, it, it takes its toll on him physically as well. Like his face starts to sag, his demeanor is more reserved. He, I, th- I think he even starts to slouch. Um, Greater, though, than the the physical toll this has on him, though, is the mental toll, I think. The humbling that he displays when he says in chapter one, I cannot pretend that the world fails to turn for lack of my hand upon Mm -hmm. it. And I thought that was, like, what a remarkably, like, self-aware and humble thing to say. Um, Coming from the man, Maalkoth, who in the first book was, like, everything. He was the most powerful character in that book, like, hands Mm -hmm. down. 
Well, so I, I think there's an interesting so point you make there about his uh, emotional and mental toll. That this yeah. six years of, you know, hell, purgatory, whatever you want to call it for him, uh, has taken <laughs> because he retains, you know, the imposing presence and, the and I mean, he didn't lose any intellect. He's still ridiculously smart and able to extrapolate yeah. on but he's become impatient. And that impatience, when combined with his pride, becomes hubris and results in his downfall that we see in chapter 11, where he fails to uh, consider all the possibilities. And, and this happened with him in Heroes Die as well, towards the end, where he realizes, oh, I didn't even think of that. Because Cain was getting him upset. When he gets emotional, he he loses his train of thought, essentially. He, he loses his ability to be supernaturally aware and, and clever. And in this, while it wasn't Cain acting on him to make him emotional, it was himself. It was his own desire to return to Overworld, to return to his beloved children and become God again, that he became impatient, and his impatience clouded his judgment and resulted in this just yeah awful scene with Kohlberg <laughs> yeah <laughs> awful yeah definitely um, but I want to say though that my favorite moments with Tonal Koth are the ones that we get where we actually witness Mile Koth peeking through this kind of new mask that yeah. he's put on. And I'm not talking about the scenes where we literally get like direct words or impressions from Mile Koth's like voice in mm -hmm. his head. Um, but where we actually get to see Mile Koth in action, in direct action. Uh, first, I think we start to see it um, like, let's look at his hobbies, for example. I immediately noticed how like quaint, I suppose it was, for Tonal Koth to have a, a hobby like sculpting. Uh, I'm not really surprised though, if yeah. I think about it. Like, what better hobby for a former god than who, who used to create with a wave of his hand? Mm -hmm. And you know, sculpt. It's, it's depressing to see him forced to working with, exactly, with those with those very hands on the physical, though. But I I, I think this, you know, Stover's style really, really fits this character. I think character. Mild Koth or appreciates the irony. Maybe vice versa. Of what's going on a lot. Yeah. And that's why he does a lot of the things that he does. Yeah. And on that note, like, one of the greatest scenes in the first half of the book has to be, I think, when Tunnel Koth is contemplating this piece that uh, he considers to be his David, as he calls it. And there's a, there's a quote I have here. The figure began to emerge from its prison of creamy stone. What a perfectly constructed sentence, mm -hmm. I think, that was. Like, Tunnel Koth clearly has this rare artist's ability to look at his medium, and he can see the subject that's trapped inside. Yeah. yeah. All right? Um... So, like, okay, now this is an idea where you can frame in a couple of different ways. The first is to take it directly from the text and apply it to Milecoth and how it turned him into Tonalcoth. You know, working with his hands had taught him things that not only, sorry, that working only with his mind never could have, had taught him that materials are not infinitely malleable, nor should they be, that to overlook a piece is to, dest to destroy it. I'm mm -hmm. quoting from the text now. Uh, materials have shapes of their own. True art is negotiation, a struggle, even a dance, between the will of the artist and the intrinsic form, the physical properties of strength and balance, the fundamental possibility that defines his chosen medium. And if you take, if you apply that to the larger whole, um, I hope that if Tunnel Koth does get his chance to return to Overworld, and how can't he? I mean, let's be honest, you know, that would be too badass for him not to. 
Um, he can apply this lesson directly to his philosophy of rule, I hope, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That the lives of men are their own material, in a way. That if he wishes to, like, his reign to be a work of art, if you want to call it that, there are more ways to work this material than simply cutting men up, shoving them around, piling up wherever it's convenient. Like, he astutely begins to realize it's not the abilities of the materials that define a work of art, but it's the limitations. Mm -hmm. Which I'd love to see yeah, him apply that to his point. whole Stover clearly right. understands some of the nuances of creating art. Um, mm -hmm. Which, uh, literature certainly is art. Um, but authors tend yeah. to not phrase um, things in the same way that a musician or a painter or a filmmaker, those kinds of art. What's more stereotypical for them? But Stover clearly yeah. gets it. You know, his his subject of raw materials, for instance. Like is yeah. Can I get really meta? <laughs> Knock yourself second. out. Like really fucking meta. meta. Okay, so you like I wanna apply that idea to Stover himself, like as you were as you were saying, Pat. Like I'm not that I'm trying to accuse him of trying to make a parallel between this fictitious pseudo deity himself, <clears throat> yeah. of course, but I think we can definitely like argue that the main centerpiece for our last few podcasts, like these books themselves, are Stover's own form yeah. of art, and our story kind of lies in his mind, and he is limited by his chosen yes. medium, in this case, that of the written word, mm. you know. Um, that was a, that was that was just a, a connection that I made r reading Tanalkoth's point of view. So I love I love reading Tanalkoth's like the scenes that we get from him. It just gives me so much to think about. I don't think that's an unfair mm -hmm. leap to make. Uh, one often yeah, sees right? authors writing themselves into their work, or writing yeah. their desires into their work. I think yeah. we see that with yeah, intentionally or not. I'm not. Yeah. I mean, I I really yeah, exactly. don't think Stover is trying to self insert here. Yeah, like I, I don't, don't think, think he is, is either, but it's just, that's a really, really great connection. I think he is with some of the themes and philosophies, uh, but oh, we can get to definitely that. Definitely with like, the philosophies. His intention. Um, yeah, definitely I think he's he's got a, a philosophical agenda. I mean, uh -huh. just the number of Heinlein references and, you know, the number of uh, Moon oh, is a yeah. Harsh Mistress references. Those, yeah. Like, you know, he's, he's a libertarian. A he's a, he's a pretty part. hardcore libertarian, and uh -huh. it's some of those ideologies are very present in these books. But... Uh, mm -hmm. But but on, on the subject of Tan Alkoth and Mylkoth, and going back to Rob, your your first point where you talked about your favorite moments are when Mylkoth peeks through. Yes, it's again, you know, you know, definitely on purpose by Stover. Tan Alkoth and Hari, Mylkoth and Kane. The, yeah. These are these are <laughs> dualities of parallel characters. They're the only people who understand each other, and they understand each other in this book because both of them see, whether consciously or unconsciously, or subconsciously, see their other side as a more, you know, true form of themselves, and they're, they feel trapped in a false role, where Hari is unhappy because he cannot be Cain, and Tanakoth is unhappy because he cannot be Mylkoth. And the mm -hmm. moments early in this book where they shine the most are when Cain comes out and when Mylkoth comes out. Yeah. And that's never going to change yes. until both of them get back to Overworld. Yeah. One uh, of the uh, biggest uh, motivations for both of them. Yes. In the whole book. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And just to like wrap up our our, our discussion about uh, uh, Tonal Koth, if you guys have nothing else to add, mm-hmm. uh, I just have a, a one tiny little aside here is that, um, I, like of course again we mentioned this at the very beginning of the podcast. I think the the, the play between uh, those two in their dialogue I find particularly hilarious. Mm-hmm. But there was one point I wasn't well, I wasn't really totally like into it. I, it was um, the scene where we had Hari and Tonal Koth sort of well. Tunnel Koth was unconscious. Indiana Jonesing their way out of the burning curiosity. <laughs> you didn't like that scene? I wasn't like, I was, no, I was, what I was hoping for was something a little closer to like the tune of like a Sekhmen attack and Hari and Tunnel Koth are like fighting back to back. I figured like that would have been cool, but like, I don't know. Like it was, I, I really, maybe I was just having trouble following every single thing that Hari was doing and every little thought that he had to kind of just like Laura Croft his yeah. way out there. I was just, just, it, I, a lot, he lost me halfway through that. And I was like, okay, let's get, I do appreciate uh, but that's, that that's, desire uh, inexplicably enough throughout the whole book. I wanted Tanokoth and, and Hari to like join forces. Yeah. I'm not, yeah. I'm not sure so why, I mean, but that, that like desire was there from the beginning and it stuck through. Yeah, yeah. Even I mean, after and so, but, betrayals. But like, but like talking about that specific scene, it, that is an important scene though for Hari's, uh, for Kane, because that is one of those moments where Kane peeks out from behind the mask, and Hari, you know, when he finally mm-hmm. gets out on the roof and he's lying there breathing in the fresh air and he's happy. You know, <laughs> yeah. like this this horrible yeah. thing has happened. He almost just got killed. He's realizing all of the, the implications and just how screwed he is. But he's happy because yeah. he got to do oh, yeah. something. And uh, and yeah. and I don't know how much that would have been effective for him had he been able to work with Tanelkoth in that moment. Yeah, he would have been too yeah. dependent. There's a moment on in chat. Tanelkoth, Sorry, I, I should say. Yeah, there's a moment in chapter eight when he's looking at his mantrak and he's realizing everything. Kane, I'm talking about Kane here, that his actions are about to cost him, like his job, his caste, his perfect mm-hmm. home, the only daughter he's ever known, uh, the only home, sorry, his daughter had ever known. And then he decides, none of that shit ever made me happy anyway. Yep. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so I think we should try to wrap up characters here and move into the final draft. But yeah. before we wrap up characters, there's one thing we have to talk about. Hmm. And we can make this brief, but we have What's to up? talk about Wraith. Yeah. Okay. And, okay. and the Kane Slayer. <laughs> yeah. Kane Slayer. Uh, Wraith from the start. Take us uh, off, man. Was a very interesting character, a very dangerous character. Um, I always wanted to know more about him. Because his level of determination and ruthlessness uh, made you ask, made one ask the question, "Well, why?" I mean, I mean, we know why, but but we also don't know why. Yeah. Like, we know his motivation, but we don't know why he's <laughs> so fixated. Right. We get like a little bit of a philosophical reasoning behind his whole like everything ties back to Cain, mm-hmm. and that he sees this as like a grand tapestry of fate, but. It, it it seems like it, it's a, a synergy of circumstances where there are multiple mo- motivations with Wraith that individually shouldn't be that big a deal, but all coming together create a monster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, 
I and and my my only real comment on Wraith before the second half of the book is that he feels to me like a um our replacement for Bairn in this book, where in in Heroes Die, our looming villain or looming antagonist is Milecoff. And then we have a more immediate personal antagonist in Bairn. And then in Blade of Taishao, we have the Blind God and we have Wraith. And mm-hmm. despite, you know, what maybe could have been a, a temptation on Stover's part, he made Wraith a very different person from Bairn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, Which is nice. And yeah, I think he's a more compelling villain. Let's for be that. honest. He's more of like an aesthetic you know, like, yeah. like he's he's Spartan in a lot of ways. Sure, Baron is a hedonist and yeah. uh, a, a, almost a force of nature, as we discussed previously. Yeah, Wraith's yeah. differences are refreshing, but I almost find him to be a more intimidating character. I thoroughly agree. As opposed to a uh, scary, viscerally like a physically scary character. Uh, yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, so I I don't have anything more to add on Wraith until the back yeah. half of the book. Same, but uh, I I I fair, fair. felt the need to mention him because he is an, an important part of this book. He he's the one who set the events in motion that resulted in the HRVP outbreak. Uh, you know, he's the one who, as we get from Kane's own mouth at the end of chapter nine, Kane is dead. And it was yeah. by the he's, doing of Wraith. So he's the puppeteer, yeah. if you want to call yeah. it that. I think yeah, so. of this of this tragedy that's unfolding before our eyes. On the on the subject of Wraith, I actually don't have a whole lot to say about Wraith. Kind of like you, Drew. I, I, I a character I did have a lot to say about actually was Delian. But now that I think on it, we can I could bring a lot of that over into our yeah. You'll you'll want to uh, podcast on the next. You want to talk about him more. Um, <laughs> I only have one real point about Wraith I wanted to bring up, um, and it. Uh, it could be the fact that I was very drowsy and I was fighting off sleep when I read the majority of his like main point of view, but I do remember getting really excited when I uh, realized how impressively Stover actually foreshadowed this character in yes. Heroes Die. Uh, when when like when I made the, the connection, I went, "Oh, oh shit! Wait, Wraith is that person that that hypothetical person whom Kane imagined as he entered the Victory Stadium to confront Miles." Like, he actually stopped to think, if you go back and read mm-hmm. it, he stopped to think about how many people were going to die in the riots that would follow his actions that day. Like, he specifically thought about his own hypocrisy, that if anyone else had done what he was about to do and caused riots that killed his loved ones, he wouldn't stop until that person was so dead. So, I... Yeah. Um, and to quote Bubbles <sighs> from Trailer Park Boys, as a Canadian, if I could do that, holy sweet flying fuck! <laughs> So I I have like I love what he did there. I love how he yeah. worked that foreshadowing in in Heroes Die. What I don't love is that he specifically quoted and called back to it in Blade of Taishal. Like I mm-hmm. back when we did Heroes Die, I I didn't make mention of it because I didn't want to spoil things. But you know <laughs> I I have a note. It's highlighting. He's this is Kane monologuing as he walks out onto Victory Stadium. He says, "You know, if the situation was opposite, if someone I love died because some guy did what I'm about to do, I wouldn't rest until I'd hunted that man down and killed him with my own hands." 
And I highlighted that and just said, ha, Wraith. <laughs> but but in, in yeah, Blade of Tai Shao, in one of Kane's points of view, when he realizes, when he finds out, you know, uh, Wraith's story, he actually, like, quotes that back again. And I'm like... Like Stover, like you can you can trust your readers to to put two and two together. Yeah, you know, yeah. you can you can Definitely. let them remember. Like you've already like put put all the bread breadcrumbs out there. You know, it's not it's not a tough connection to make. But so it felt a little heavy handed when he requoted that exact thing in Blade of Taisha. Yeah. but yeah, sometimes the most badass thing is to poker face it. Yeah, right. Uh-huh. Yeah, I agree with that sentiment. Yeah. I so, do. um. um yeah. Well, now, I had a couple predictions I wanted to make about the the book yes. too. Yes. Knock yourself out, man. Uh, going forward, um, I'm gonna. Okay, so uh, let's see here. Da, 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 da. Okay, so since Harvey's narrative starts at rock bottom, you know he's paraplegic, he's shell shocked. You know Shauna's assistance wounding his pride as well <laughs> as his guilt over how he's treating her for it. Uh, I think he's gonna end the book in absolute glory. I, I think it would be a nice complete 180 that wouldn't hurt. Like, I'm not particularly hopeful, <laughs> seeing as how his narrative is going so far. But I would love to see Hari end this this narrative on top, just like King of the World. That would be that would be awesome. I think he's after the shit he's he's going through. He deserves it. Um, uh, I made a prediction that, of course, at the end of chapter four, the Dark Angel. Use the part-time goddess to work his will. I said palace real is an obvious answer. But now that I think about it, that was so obvious. That's not much of a prediction as it is just kind of like a, a guarantee. Especially after the discussion we had earlier. Yeah. Um, Kirindal. Oh, yeah. Kane, of course, I think is obviously yes. the dark angel, obviously, since they're 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 uh, involved. Uh, they've obvi- like I'm picking up now that Kirindal in the last book, has they've described his like shell as being dark. It's he has, emanating. He has very black powerful. Flow. Yeah, it's in a very powerful, but kind of like beyond your sight sort of way. Um, I, I think there's a lot more going on there than we than has been unfolded as of yet. Uh, and my last prediction has to do with Tunnel Koth specifically. I think obviously he's going to make his way back to Overworld. Um, it's it's a bit of a cheap prediction that obviously because it's it, the returning to power with all his knowledge about Earth as well as how incredibly scary the kind of omnipotent God would be as an antagonist for future books. I think that makes it kind of a granted. So I'm going to take that prediction one step further. Um, I predict that when he does, Tonal Koth will follow his previous pattern. He's going to choose another name for himself. A third name. Or, or uh, I guess a fourth if you count... Um, Hanto. Hanto yeah. the Scythe. <laughs> yeah, Hanto the Scythe. Um, yeah, so I think he's going to choose another name for himself once he gets back to Overworld. Because I know he's going to get back to Overworld. There's no way he can't. Okay. There's no way he can't. So, yeah, that's basically the end of my predictions. Um, and we can move on if you guys would like. you have anything else you want to close with before we move on into the final draft? Uh, I think I've said all I can say thus yeah. far. Yeah. I've got some miscellaneous impressions, <clears throat> but again, we can save those for... Yeah, end of the book. The, other, the, ne- the yeah. next podcast. Um, uh, yeah. Rob, kick it off. Okay, so today, about an hour before the podcast, I went uh, really hurriedly to the store, uh, the corner store, and I bought. Uh, today, I decided to go with uh, a stout, Very and it's nice. just too bad that Jared's not on the podcast right now. Um, I went with a black coal stout by Railway City oh, Brewing Company. Black coal stout. Um, yeah, black coal stout, and I'll show you right now specifically in the webcam so you can take okay. a look at it. Um, 
as a stout, it's not something I drink very often. I'm not a huge, huge fan, but it is a nice switch up. I've been drinking a lot of IPAs, yeah. a lot of just like really kind of bland beers, specifically lately, not on the podcast, but just in the intermission between uh, or in the interim, yeah. I suppose. Uh, but um, this one, like this one was pretty good. I, I, I definitely found it went down a lot easier than I was expecting. It had a lot of, of course, the classic stout. It had a lot of the heavy roasted flavors. It had a lot of coffee yeah. in it specifically right. that I picked up on. Coffee and like taffy, perhaps. Six mm-hmm. percent. Um, it did the <laughs> trick, man. I mean, I I drank two of them over the course of this podcast. Granted, we have run a little longer than we yeah. normally do. <laughs> no kidding. But I'm probably gonna drink that one again in the future. Yeah, the final draft is kind of a misnomer for me because I'm drinking all the way through it, and I often have to get up in the middle to go <laughs> yeah. grab a, a fresh one, which I did this time around. Uh, no draft is the final draft. I'm drinking a blackberry ale called Sour Wench Ooh. from uh, Sour Wench. Ballast Point Brewing Company. <laughs> yeah, Sour Wench kind of reminded me of Kohlberg's boss. Uh, yeah. Oh, especially because no. the, oh, the, the cover art is a, a skeletal barmaid. <laughs> yes, yeah. it is. Yeah. <laughs> it's a seven percent. Oh, I mean, it's kind of thematically appropriate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hats off. Uh, well, one tries, but I I, I kind of like to stick to the, the sours. They're my favorite. Yeah, you know, I good. enjoy a wheat beer every now and then. Um, I'm not. On the connoisseur level that Drew, for instance, is. <laughs> yeah, same. But I do same. enjoy the hell out of a beer, so. Fuck yeah. It's it's always nice. <laughs> yeah. Drew, what are you drinking? Hell yeah. Uh, so, I am drinking, an oak aged Grand Cru, from Avery Brewing Company in uh, Boulder, Colorado. Uh, this is the flagship of one of their uh, specialty series called the Demon series. Uh, they they also have two other beers called uh, Samael's Stout and Mephistopheles Ale. Uh, this is a 16.8%. It is called The Beast. Damn, hold on. Back up about six seconds. What did you just say? 16.8%. 16.8%? Yeah, you like, I'm surprised you can continue talking. You don't have, you're sure you don't have to chew that fucking thing as it goes down? Yeah, so the Demon series that they did, uh, all of them are like over 16%. Some years, all of them are over 17%. Uh, they are Damn. nothing to mess around with. Uh, but yeah, it is called The Beast, which I thought was appropriate for Kohlberg. Fuck. Yeah, a lot of... A lot of I don't even have anything to say, man. A lot of Kohlberg Damn. hate going on over here. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't... Well, he's not a very likable well character, I think. We can agree with that one. Yeah, but, but yeah, um, so this beer, though, like, obviously it's very boozy because it's such a high ABV, but it's... it's Extremely tasty, uh, very malty, you know, lots of sugars involved, and a little bit of like honey and, and maple syrup. Like you, you get in the in the taste. It's yeah, it, it's very smooth. It is pretty thick as you would expect, um, but it, I mean, it's not a stout. It's it's an oak aged Grand Cru, so it's more like a yep. like a Belgian style. Uh, but it's very nice, very nice. Yeah, sweet, sweet. Uh, now, before we just close it off here, I just want to point out one thing I forgot to mention at the top of the podcast, actually. Uh, this is actually our first episode recording, wherein we've already had the episodes released, finally. We've actually oh, yeah. uh, released episode one, and two, and three, actually, at this point, because we had a three-week <laughs> um, uh, a gap between the last episode yes. and this one. Um, but yeah, the episode, like, the, the podcast has officially gone live now, so uh, cheers, boys. Yeah, I just wanted yeah. to fucking so, get that out uh, of the if- way. 
And Drew, take yeah, us off. So if man. anybody wants to, you know, uh, follow the podcast, we are on SoundCloud. Uh, you know, it's called Inking Out Loud. We're also on YouTube, and uh, we have a Facebook page. If you would like to, you know, join in discussions, if you want to give us, you know, requests or recommendations for books you want us to check out yes. for future podcasts. Uh, Talking you know, points. Feel free love to it. shoot us a message if you want to. You know, tell us how wrong we are about something that we talk about. <laughs> Good uh, luck. <laughs> yep. But, yeah, so... Oh, uh, what are we reading next week? Uh, yeah, so next week we are finishing up uh, Blade of Taishao. And, uh, yeah, that will probably be a little longer of an episode again. Hopefully not the epic monstrosity that we just did this week. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, we will be finishing yeah. up Blade of Taishao next week before moving on to something a little lighter. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. yeah, so this has been episode 14 of Inking Out Loud. Sweet. Uh, I am Thank Drew McCaffrey, me. and as usual, you know, got Rob Santos, my co-host here, and our special guest, Patrick McCaffrey. Howdy. And uh, thanks for joining us. We'll catch you next time. Thank you, everybody. Peace. <laughs>